one of the things I needed to escape from was this kind of circular loop of the medical model explanation of distress because it doesn't go anywhere. Why am I feeling low? Because I'm depressed. Oh, but that hasn't gone anywhere, has it? Because mm-hmm. it's just a little circle thing. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm Ray Middleton. I'm from England. I live near in Northumberland, near near Scotland, so for the northeast coast of England. Um, I'm I, I mainly now write and deliver uh, training around mental health. You don't need to call it mental health. Uh, you could call it distress and things that help people, particularly towards staff who help people in lots of different services, so addiction services, mental health services, uh, a lot around homeless services because people really do a tough job working with around housing support uh, with that well, they often um, not a great deal of good training around understanding trauma, trauma informed practice, the power threat meaning framework is a new framework that I write, write and deliver training around uh, and other things, something from America called pre-treatment, which is uh, an approach to um, people who are quite far from traditional mental health services that sometimes are quite hard to access in in England, I don't know what it's like in Australia. Um, so that's a bit about what I do now. Um, in the past, the reason I'm kind of passionate and motivated around this um, is that I spent quite a number of years kind of caught up in the psychiatric system. So I've got what you might call lived experience of of the psychiatric system on mental health. So um, in, in in the 1990s, I was uh, had a lot of a lot of problems. I noticed your your podcast is called Making sense of chaos i think and so um i was a kind of very chaotic uh kind of teenager and and person in my 20s uh I had a lot of alcohol and drug uh issues you know which would probably be called addiction you don't need to call it addiction but uh you know repetitive excess but also had lots of uh uh distress i think you know guilt anger shame resentment and i ended up in front of a psychiatrist and um and end up in the psychiatric system. So sometimes called a medical model. It's the dominant model in England, it, it, likely in Australia too. It's the, the medical model is where when you've got distress, some of those uh, maybe responses to that distress, um, such as maybe high levels of anxiety or, or low mood, or often I'd be self-harming, for example, suicide, like that, those sort of period of my life for a number of years, might be seen as symptoms. And then I got a diagnosis. And then I got given... Uh, chemical medicate you know drugs drugs from the system rather than drugs from my drug dealer uh, so I had drugs from you know, two sources and then um, and then you might get uh, in and out of the psychiatric system uh, you know in pa- I was an inpatient uh, on a revolving door system where for seven times I went in and out of the psychiatric system so what that experience kind of taught me was like I got these labels so um and but the labels kept changing so whenever I saw after a couple you know after a year or 18 months I'd be in and out of the psychiatric system I'd see a different psychiatrist and they'd look at that bunch of distress kind of responses to distress and whether I was feeling anxious or self-harm or that bunch of like chaotic life I was living in and out of scrapes yeah I, tra- I was trying to self-medicate those feelings of guilt and shame and anger and uh, but they'd say I'd say oh, and they'd give me another label like um so anxiety and depression to start with and psychotic depression because I was kind of 
had quite extreme experiences, unusual experiences, which but lots of people have unusual experiences. Lots of people in life experience like crisis in their, their journey through life, their narrative, their personal story. We've all got a personal story. And, and I was going through this years of, of distress, but then I got diagnosed with things like bipolar affective disorder and um, uh, borderline personality disorder. Sometimes it's called emotionally unstable personality disorder. But after about seven of these, and um, obsessive compulsive disorder and substance misuse disorder, uh, you know, like addiction in common language. Um, so I thought, hang on a minute, in this system, uh, it's a health narrative, you know, a story about health and mental health, where professionals were giving me these labels, which seemed quite complex, and giving me lots of drugs, like anti, you know, lots of antipsychotics and mood stabilizers and antidepressants. And, and they were putting a lot of weight on. So I put on a lot of weight. I had long, I was unemployed for, for many years. So I had what's called long term unemployed. So in my 20s, in the 1990s, I was really fed up and I was getting worse in that system. Um, and it seemed to be making me worse rather than better. You know, a health story, normally it, quite good as health stories. If you break your leg, you kind of get, get put in plaster and you get better. And you, you, But it's not necessarily a good metaphor for understanding mental distress because that's more complicated. It's more that we've got our life story. There might be reasons and there were reasons. I'd experienced quite a lot of uh, trauma, childhood sexual abuse, for example, in my childhood, which was a lot better explanation about why I had guilt and shame and anger and why I was trying to self-medicate with uh, taking loads of amphetamines and, and loads of drugs that the psychiatrist kept giving me. And as it didn't work, you know, as it so some years passed then, you know, in and out, nobody really was saying, hang on, Ray, seeing this distress in a medical model where it doesn't really look at your past, it gives you a label which we keep changing. I started to see myself as my label. I saw, uh, and I was very isolated from other people. And I, I, I looked a bit odd, I think, partly because I put a lot of weight on through the, the not, it was the side effects of the antipsychotic drugs. So eventually I got free of all that. I got well in through another, other narratives, another narrative, which wasn't anything to do with mental health. And then I've spent the last sort of 25 years, I'm quite an old person now, I'm a granddad. So when I got free of it, I got, I met someone, I got married, I had children, I had a life. And that's what I wanted all that time when I was really distressed. I didn't have a relationship for 10 years in, in, in my sort of 20s. Um, uh, I wanted a house. I wanted a relationship. I wanted uh, a job. So when I got free of that kind of caught up trapped in that kind of discourse or story about, about being mentally ill, which I wasn't, I was react, had a normal reaction to distress when I got free of that in my late 20s I got you know I started to get a life don't get me wrong um you know I came off all my medication safely though I got advice about it but safely and 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 I had lots of I had problems but I had problems that is normal in life for human beings to have I was free from you know I'm 20 odd years clean from alcohol and drugs now and um, long-term recovery or whatever phrase people want to use but it's good so I, I'm now a granddad um, so I've just been to visit my grandchildren down in Leeds, which was great. And I'm enjoying life. So what I wanted was life. You know, I wanted a life. And that chaos and distress reacting to difficulties in my childhood. Um, most people get caught up in that and don't escape it. And there's different journeys people go on to escape it. But most people sadly don't. You know, I used to be in and out of the A&E with self-harming and stuff. And it looked very likely that I'd... I'd not get escaped, but I needed to get well. I needed to find things that would help me get well. But particularly, 
one of the things I needed to escape from was this kind of circular loop of the medical model explanation of distress because it doesn't go anywhere. Why am I feeling low? Because I'm depressed. Oh, but that hasn't gone anywhere, has it? Because mm-hmm. it's just a little circle thing. So I was trapped. One of the things I was trapped in is the psychiatric uh, system, the medical model. And what I'm excited about is lots of things I write and deliver training around um, uh, is um, around, say, trauma-informed approaches or this power threat meaning framework or approaches that are alternatives to that medical model. So that probably explains why I feel passionate about mm. training staff around these sorts of things. So that's a little bit about me. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm married to my wife, Elizabeth. I've got two children who I love and I've got two grandchildren. Can you tell us more about the power threat meaning model? Um, I'm intrigued. I know we, I first sort of came in contact with it through YouTube, through Lucy Johnston. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we don't know much about it and I don't think our listeners yeah. know much about it either. Um, many of whom yep. work in the mental health field so yeah and also the complete you know divergent from divergence from the diagnosis model dsm mm. you know that we yeah 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 exactly so so certainly i can explain uh, a bit about that so it's a framework so it's um the easiest way to explain it i kind of love simplify things partly because i'm very dyslexic so i like picture language i don't know how picture language works on a podcast but we'll have a go but uh you know if you can simplify things to five things i always think when i'm teaching people if you, you've got five fingers but the simplest way to understand this and, and why why i like this approach is uh is one of the simplest ways to understand it is we all have a personal story you both have a personal story don't you I have a personal story. Whoever we are in life, we have a personal story. You could call it a narrative. And it, start, it can start with that personal narrative or story. And there's lots you can learn about that. Um, I do do some teaching around what, understanding our personal narrative. But as we all have one, a story, we might want things we want in life. Like we might think we're on a quest to achieve, you know, the things I just mentioned earlier. I want, when I was very chaotic, in and out of the psychiatric hospital, um, self-medicating drugs. I, I wanted a relationship, really. I wanted, uh, most people do, some people don't, mm. you know, everyone's different, but I, I, I wanted to, to find a girlfriend, you know, like mm. when I was in my 20s. Uh, I wanted a relationship, I ended up uh, getting that as good. Um, I wanted a job that was interesting and would pay the bills. You know, these are common, th- and people want housing, you know, and, and other things, and we all differ. But that's what, a, like a personal narrative often has these quests where we're trying to get there. And then there's characters come along that help and hinder us. They may harm us and make it hard. There may be challenges to overcome on that quest. And so that's what a personal story is like. That It has these uh, goals. It has characters in them that help and hinder us. It has ups and downs. And, and, and that's how people are. We're always telling each other these stories. And what you could then say, the framework would ask five questions. And um, one is, what are your strengths? And the questions help you to develop this personal narrative or story. And you might see it in a different way, having answered these five questions. But you can go into a lot of depth with the questions, but it could say, what are your strengths? Mm-hmm. But then it, yeah. it would also say, the framework would say, what's happened to you in the past in terms of how power has operated mm-hmm. in your life? Mm-hmm. And so that's a big question. And you'd have to, how power's operating in life, we wouldn't normally say that over a cup of coffee and a bit of cake would we return to someone how's how's power operating on so you have to rephrase that in the kind of language that's appropriate for the culture of yourself and the person you're talking to to pitch it in a way so mm. 
and there's but it would it would say there's lots of different kinds of power like there's there's physical power there's power of adults over children say in the example of uh, abuse whether it might not be sexual abuse it could be emotional abuse or verbal but there's power economic power like capitalism the wealthy exploit the poor so you're able to talk, think about capitalism whatever we think about that through that question about how was power operating life so you might be in an economic system of capitalism where the big impact on your life is poverty and there's not much opportunities to uh, earn a decent income and develop and that so so part of the answer is not always inside yourself how power is operating in your life has lots of different answers to it um, and that's what's happened to me but quite often i think it's what's ha happening now as well not just in the past it's adversity now that's affecting people mm. Mm. so it could be right now this is how power is operating and then well, how has it affected you in terms of your needs being met? But the three of us are all different. So how we might react to the same threat, the threat of maybe if we just turn, dial it back to, you know, uh, getting enough money to pay the bills. And we all three of us might have a different threat response to that threat. And we're different because for lots of different reasons. So it allows us to think about why all the different reasons we may have a different social context. We might have a different history of dealing with this threat. So that's the question. How did what happened in terms of power affect you in terms of getting your basic needs met? And maybe it threatened my self need for self-esteem to belong to something. Was it a threat of losing my job, for example? Maybe I was it a threat of not belonging? Was it a threat to my physical needs or my self-esteem or all sorts of things? And also the last two questions, the, the penultimate question would be in the framework, well, what threat response are you using? And we may all respond to that threat in a different way. So I, you know, from my personal experience, I was saying I'd experienced a lot of threats through, uh, you know, in my childhood, uh, there was some lack of validation. There was some good stuff there as well. You know, like it's important to balance these things up. You know, I, there was some good stuff and there was some really difficult stuff, but there were some years of sexual abuse. Mm. But how I responded, my threat response as a teenager was to use alcohol and drugs. Um, I also kind of got into overwork as a bit of a threat response. So this is the, the penultimate question. What threat response? Because we all want to survive. I also became very, like the people pleaser, you know, very agreeable, because that was getting on with people is a threat response. So that's, that's a relational threat response. But you've also got a behavioral threat response like alcohol and drugs and getting into what traditionally people call addictions. That, so that, what threat response are you using? So it might be around food, you know, misusing food in some way it could be a behavioral threat response. Oh, but it could be in your thinking, thinking uh, the world doesn't have a place for me if you're not being validated. Is a threat response in my thinking. Emotionally, I might have a threat response by feeling a lot of habitual fear or guilt, shame, anger, uh, low mood. That, uh, or it could be in my uh, behavior that I've just mentioned, like addiction type stuff, or, or retreating from the world or having lots of relationships could be a behavioral response to try and survive. Um, but also, so that's relational. And in my body, I could have a threat response like having eczema, headaches, all that kind of what they call somatization, uh, the, the, the kind of professional type of word for it. But I might have a reaction in my body on my behavior. So th that is the kind of threat response we might use as a whole. And we all might answer that question differently. Finally, the framework would say, well, what meaning are we making of it all? And that's really important to you, your podcast, Making Sense of Chaos. Making yeah. sense of the chaos or the difficulty or the experiences we have is what human beings do all the time, don't we? So, and the way I think we make sense of things is we try to fit our experiences, whether they're humdrum, everyday, ordinary, or extreme, unusual experiences of 
thoughts, our, our feelings, our, 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 our what we're doing. We're trying to make sense of it. We try to fit them into a narrative. We try to fit them into a story that's available. Mm. And there's loads of good stories and narratives available in our culture. The some are quite unhelpful. So when I try to fit my experience into the story of Ray, you're mentally ill. For, first of all, I felt a bit relieved about it. I could say to, you know, my mum, oh, I've got bipolar affective disorder. That's why my life's chaotic. But after a while, I was trapped in it and it didn't help me get better. It didn't go anywhere. It's more about what happened to me rather than what was wrong with me. And how, what happened to me was to do with power as well, imbalances. You might kind of bring that in. And you might say, well, some of, at this point in my life, I was using, using alcohol and drugs as a threat response. So do you see how the kind of way someone might understand their experience of life might change if they integrated the answers to those questions yes. into their personal narrative? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, first of all, thank you for such a great explanation of the framework, Ray. Uh, I think Jason and I both have a lot of questions, um, <laughs> but I do just want to go back a tiny bit to that point you made around the diagnosis going in a little bit of a circle so great I've got this yeah, diagnosis yeah. and okay mm. but then what and um when, once you get a diagnosis it's a little bit of a stop sign people yeah. stop asking beyond that so I'm just curious to hear your perspective on that and and what you felt was the impact of receiving a diagnosis at that time so yeah so I feel really kind of strongly about this in terms of sharing my mm of my experience of this is it definitely is I hadn't heard that, that particular idea but it's I agree with it it's it is a stop sign because so what happened was I had I think a lot of the difficulties I had in life is because I was a human being mm. I'm not d- diminishing that I had extreme you know I did have some extremely unusual experiences you know I self-found I was in and out I, I was on that kind of end of the spectrum where my expression of my distress was you know was getting me I, I was I couldn't hold down a job so I'm not minimizing the problems I had. I had a lot of difficulties and my reaction to them. But once I got a diagnosis, it had a big impact. At first, I felt relief of this anxiety about what's wrong with me. I was like, what's wrong with me? And then someone said, a professional gave me a very complicated and sounding, you know, diagnosis. Uh, and it changed a lot. So what happened was then, the problems I had for the next sort of five years of my life, six years of my life, whenever I was struggling with being lonely, I used to think I'd end up trying to make sense. Why am I lonely? Why am I angry? Why mm. am I, you know, struggling and trying to get a job and not succeeding? So as quite quickly, I'd end up in this dominant, powerful set of ideas and think, oh, that's because you've got a personality disorder, right? The professionals say that. Oh, yeah. that's because. So, but, but then, so I think, oh, I'm really fed up. I've got this, I've got something wrong with me that's like, sounds really like a, a, thing, a thing but it, I didn't realize and later on I did a, a PhD and, and looked at the history of all this I'm a doctor Ray Middleton but I'm not a doctor that would help on a plane if someone collapsed I'm not that kind of doctor but um but I, I, I accessed my psychiatric notes and did a PhD looking at the history of the DSM and looking at alternatives to the medical model and and and, and I think that's a really good point is I, we want to make sense of things so once you have a diagnosis it's very hard for me but also family members or any friends that we have to go very much further than the explanation that oh that's so even other people I didn't have a big I had very few people actually in my life for a few years but even my parents I think they would then think oh well that's because Ray's got bipolar 
So, and then they wouldn't think, oh, that's good, Ray's. Uh, and for myself, it stopped me thinking. Not only there might be other explanations, but there might be other ways out of this because it felt like, oh, what can I do? Because this other thing, but those, they don't need to be symptoms of a mental illness. They weren't, I don't believe in that anymore. That's what, once you stop believing something about yourself, it has no power over you. Once I stop believing it, but then you need, you don't give up something in a vacuum. You need something else to believe in another narrative, mm. perhaps with a more positive go ahead plot. I thought I'm someone who could do some voluntary work. I'm someone mm. who could, you know, mm. have a girlfriend. I'm someone who could. Uh, or a boyfriend you know that sort of thing it's it, it people need uh, a hopeful optimistic stories but it did stop me going much further than it was very hard not to think oh it's big so so one of the things that would happen is I'd have a scrape I'd have a difficulty in my life I'd think oh that's because I've got this something wrong with me like a mental illness or disorder mental disorder in that world DSM type stuff and then I think oh maybe I just need my medication to go at five mill of this I mean I was on a stack of medication some of it like heloperidol it stopped me breathing so they had to inject me with the antidote to get me breathing and I had a reactor um but I used to think oh well I'll make an appointment to see my psychiatrist which might be like three months away or something and then you go and you say can I go up five mil of this or you know change my medication whatever so the whole thinking goes towards a medical solution mm. which for me just didn't actually go anywhere but nobody was able to say hang on Ray you've been doing this for five six years now you seem to be getting worse time wasn't a healer in that model because the longer things went on the longer I looked at other people was quite envious and resentful think how come people have a life here they've got they've mm. got the kind of life I want they say I didn't know you know old people have problems but they've got a job they've got relationships they've got a house I mean I did have a house don't get me wrong but I, I, the relationship and a job is what I wanted to get onto. So what was the kind of turning point that made you look at things differently? So for me, um, I used to go through this cycle of wanting to stop drinking and taking drugs. And that, I was in one of those cycles where I thought, look, my life, I, I'm going to die soon, if, if everybody thought, with the cycle of the A&E in the middle of the night and mm. overdoses and stuff. And so I decided to stop drinking, stop taking amphetamine. Um, and I, and I, I thought, well, I'll go and voluntary wash up 80 hours a week in a cafe yep. just to have something to do occupationally you know I need to do something and um, now this isn't everybody's cup of tea but I, I for me I heard this other guy talking about Jesus and I was a bit anti-Christian to be honest because I, I, I kind of for some reason I don't know why I was anti-Christian but I was I was kind of everything was okay about being a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I, was a kind of, I don't know but it's some sort of a strange approach but um Anyway, to cut a long story short, this guy was telling this other person who, and he's obviously just come out of prison, the other guy, we're all washing up and we're all had our problems. It was like a, a voluntary cafe which would employ people like me, uh, you know, for, for therapeutic reasons, you know, like, um, uh, so he, he said, oh, Jesus has died on the cross to set you free from your sins. And I'd heard all this before. I'd gone, been brought up a Catholic and, you know, and abandoned all that. And it, I just thought, oh, I know all this stuff. But for some reason, this guy seemed quite genuine uh, and he wasn't even talking to me. He was talking to this other person. And I thought, do you know? And he said, Oh, I've found some emotional healing through forgiveness, you know, following Jesus. So, so I thought, Oh, I'm a bit curious about that. And um, so I had a chat to him and to cut a long story short, I, I, I went to visit this, you know, this church and I thought, Oh, they're a weird cult. 
at first. I thought that the people were worshipping, they're putting their hands in the air to worship. I thought, I've joined a cult now. What this is this? This is the end. <laughs> but actually, it turned out they were, I just wasn't used to that culture of, you know, I haven't you know, been to church for years and years. And I didn't really know about like it. So it was a friendly church who loved me and they invited me around for meals at their house. And I felt they loved me for who I was and accepted me as I was. But they also believed I could get better. And I think that's what love is. You know, they accepted me as I was, but they believed I could get better. The people I took amphetamine with, they accepted me as I was, but they didn't want me to get better. They just want me to buy more drugs from them, to get drunk with them, to get into scrapes with the police or whatever. And, yeah, you know, that sort of thing. Um, other people, they said, well, if you get better, you can join us. <laughs> you know, other groups, you know, like say, you get better, you can have a job with us if you clean and sober. But they seemed to love me in a way that was quite genuine and, and being in a community of people who I could feel cared for me. And I forgave people who'd abused me as a child. And that freed me up from being resentful. And all that guilt and shame left me. So I didn't need to take a load of alcohol and drugs then because I didn't have all that anger, resentment, mm. guilt and shame. So mm. I felt I could belong. And they invited me for a meal. That was for someone who hadn't, who'd been isolated for years and looked odd and had all these diagnoses and had just come out of the psychiatric hospital two weeks ago. I looked odd because I was very big and also had a shaved head, I think. And, uh, I had a kind of strange haircut because you just, for whatever reason, you know, like, uh, but what I'm saying is they invited me around and said, Do you want a meal? Mm. In, with my family and so that felt they accepted me mm. so the example is it might not be everybody's cup of tea my vehicle the narrative but to get out of a, a, a negative narrative like the medical model you need an alternative narrative nobody in a space out in space you don't open the patch and jump out into a vacuum do you you want to go into another narrative we need, an, so you need, it might not be, you know, what my narrative was, because people find different ways to get better. But we're not going to leave, we're going to cling on to that, oh, I'm mentally ill, because it protected me from judgments from other people. Well, I'd had a lot of stigma and judgments, but at least they could say, well, Ray, why aren't you working? Why are you? Oh, I've got, you know, bipolar, or I've got, you know, you don't know what it's like. I used to say, you know, like I've got personality disorder. And so we're going to cling to that and we're not going to let go of a narrative because we want an identity and narratives gives us our identity. So we're not going to let go of that unless we have some alternative attractive yeah. narrative. So for someone else, it might be a different sort of narrative, but that's the point about, and it links to your point, I think about that we're stuck in a negative narrative, mm. like for, for, in my experience, the medical model, until we find another one. Yeah. And, and sometimes people, you know, do a little bit of, one foot in both so you might hang on to a little bit of this and say well I've got this diagnosis of this but actually now because I want to be a good mum or a good dad or something you know like that in terms of values and what's driving me I've decided to you know stop drinking taking drugs and and so the bigger narrative is you might have a blend of narratives is what I'm saying you might say well I've, I don't drink because I've got this diagnosis of personality disorder or something else but but I'm, I'm not into diagnosis at all now I just think there's loads of good narratives out there with go-ahead plots which we can see ourselves in. We orientate us, ourselves, our subjectivity within narratives, with, with, with you know, direction, the future. And we make sense of our past in those narratives. Mm, definitely, right. Thanks for sharing that. I think uh, as you were talking, um, you've, you've got, I've, I've got like a note. Show, show I've, got, I've got lines and things that I, I don't even know where to go now, to be honest. Um, but the, the the part about sort of diagnosis that always sort of um, concerns me um, is that it sort of minimizes empowerment and sort of responsibility. It sort of yeah. it, it it constricts someone and um, it almost creates this almost uh, this sort of third party effect 
that um, you know, yeah, you know, and, and you mentioned it, um, you know, just saying that this happens because this happens, you know, that that because I am experiencing depression, that this this is the next step. Mm. This is how I r- relate to the world. And then I thought, you know, your 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 narrative around connection and human connection is it just sounded like people treated you as a human being. They they didn't treat you as as an object or as mm. something else. They treated you as a human being and it didn't matter it didn't really matter that it was religious or non religious. It just mattered that yeah. they were welcoming yeah. and that they, they really yeah, cared yeah. for you as a human. Cared yeah. for me, yeah. 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 So I think it's a really important point you make about when I believed in all those different diagnoses, I did, to use the language of the, the kind of professional language, I met the diagnostic threshold. I'm not saying I didn't have problems and it was just like a, a misdiagnosis. They would do, they was, I did meet the diagnostic threshold for all those seven different mental disorders, to use their language. You know, um, uh, It's just that isn't a very helpful way to get better. And there's lots of other ways to understand this stress. And so picking up on your point about um, it, but I did believe them at the time because there's a power relationship going on when you're very vulnerable, when you've, when, you know, when you've tried to kill yourself and it's three o'clock in the morning and you're up having a mental health assessment at the local psychiatric hospital in, in, in Bradford, in my case, you're very vulnerable, desperate, mm. you know, and then I'm here, uh, seeing unusual things that other people can't see, uh, which now, I now understand as a threat response, mm. but at the time uh, people are saying, "Well, you, 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 you know, you've got these um, self-destructive urges, and you've got blah blah blah." So I believed what they told me until they told me too many things. You know, like seven, five, six, seven thing. I thought, Hang on a minute, this is madness. <laughs> you know, the, the, the madness model is madness because I, I meet the diagnostic threshold for too many things here, and it's not helping me get better. But at the time, I believed it, and that did affect my ability to take some personal moral responsibility for my life I don't mean this in a negative way but I mean we're ethical beings so human beings are relational emotional mm-hmm. ethical beings that see ourselves in stories we've been telling each other stories for thousands of years to make sense of what we're doing um, and when I saw myself in that label with a diagnosis thing it t- took away the moral responsibility in a way, because I kind of thought, oh, I, 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 I felt I had a lot less power because I thought, well, this, there's this other thing called whatever, you know. Yeah, that's the umbrella. Uh, bipolar, the bipolar. Yeah. So this third party came in, um, which was, and they were saying, well, you've got the symptoms of this thing. But then my, I thought, well, I, I'm, 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 I, I'm drinking or whatever, taking drugs or not able to hold down a job or all this stuff I did have all that distress don't get me wrong I did kind of you know uh, but I used to then the thinking took me to well but I've got this thing that I'm not in control of I've got this uh, uh, I've got this label I've got this personality disorder or this uh, psychotic depression or blah 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 bipolar and but when that took that away because people I met when I was getting better and into a different narrative um those people, um, because they treated me as a human being and not saw me through the lens of a diagnosis, they weren't frightened of me because they thought, oh, Ray's, I wonder what he's going to be like. He's got this bipolar, blah, 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 or whatever. 
you know, um, they, uh, I could then take more personal moral responsibility for my life because I thought, well, the decisions I make here, whether I've decided to forgive people and get freed from that resentment or whether I stay bitter and resentful till I'm 94 is a choice. Now it's a choice. It wasn't a choice before because I didn't know that's an option. But I had a choice. I had a choice about whether I did some voluntary work, which happened to lead to some um, paid work. Uh, and don't get me wrong, it didn't go smoothly. After a year of that, I had a relapse and I ended up back in psychiatric hospital. You know, so uh, st- our personal stories are messy, aren't they? A bit of to and fro. It's not a, it's not a perfect. And we sometimes remember them with a bit of rose-tinted glasses in terms of if things get better. But it's a bit rocky. You know, I have problems because I'm a human being. I've still struggled with difficulties. But I just don't struggle within that medical model. Because other narratives help us take, have, give us more, there's two things, more power more personal power but also that our agency you might call that a sense of agency mm. one of the things I did in when I did my sort of doctorate my PhD I looked at a lot of re- stories on the Scottish recovery uh, network website about personal recovery from severe mental distress and what I noticed in I looked at about 50 of their personal stories there the common theme although people had Lots of people weren't like me. They found other ways to get better, other narratives outside of the psychiatric medical model. But the common theme was they found a narrative that enabled them to have more personal agency and power was a theme. That, that whatever story they got into about understanding themselves, if it gave them more sense of I can make some decisions that make a difference. And what the professional kind of medical model does, it puts the agency and power over with the professionals. I thought, oh, these professionals are going to make me better because they're going to treat mm-hmm. me. Yes. They're going to give me, they're going to give me some alanzapine and they're going to give me some clobromazine and they're going to give me some. And, and so unintentionally, it's not, I don't think it's with bad intention. I mean, it does serve powerful interests in society like big pharma, the big pharmaceutical companies obviously want chemical solutions. And as, as my drug dealer wanted chemical solutions, the big pharmaceutical companies want, so there's vested interest in promoting the medical model. So it's important to see that it's not a level playing field where we're just bouncing ideas around. If you want to encourage things like the power threat, meaning framework, or other alternatives, there's loads of alternatives. Other narratives are available. Yeah, and and, and the way that you... Um... That you refer to it as the medical model because I know that you know DSM that's sort of the, the idea it's a, that mental illness is the same thing as having a physical illness it's diagnosable treatable preventable etc 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 what do you think of that idea that you know uh, you should look at my uh, depression in the same way that you would look at my broken arm so I think it's a very attractive idea. So I understand why people get attached to it. A bit like why I was attached to my diagnosis, because it, I, I, we all want to feel safe, don't we? Mm. So when I was going through all that chaos and confusion, I, I, my self-esteem was like very negative. Um, and so one of the ways I could defend myself is the medical model. So because I was involved, I was inside it and I was believing it. So yeah. people who promote the medical model, and they do it, I think, often sincerely that they think, oh, this is makes sense. And so what they'll do is say uh, there's a stigma about these l- mental illness labels. So yes, we want to yeah. have an anti-stigma campaign. Mm. Now, that's absolute. I don't agree with that. That's super unhelpful because what's an alternative to anti-stigma? What's the stigma about? Just get rid of the labels. Then you don't have the stigma, do you? <laughs> like, but I'm, I'm a, I, you know, just, so it's promoting the vested interests powerfully 
they're like big pharmaceutical companies and other interests like people who are who are who are doing quite well out of the medical model and and people mean well you might have a role in that but human beings are emotional relational ethical we 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 are a little bit rational but we're not as rational as we pretend there is a bit of thinking goes on there and we do think about things but we're much more of this relational embodied physical beings than the dominant set of ideas suggest a quick example is you know the game of monopoly mm. Have you got that in Australia? Monopoly. Yeah, we do. Kangaroos have got Monopoly. So the game... But the game of Monopoly, the game of Monopoly was invented by a guy who wanted to teach people that capitalism is not helpful. Yeah, because the idea was he thought people would play that game and they'd realise that there's everybody loses and one person wins. And that's what Monopoly is. Uh, and it, it just became a super successful product that made loads of money <laughs> because people like to win. They think, oh, I've won Monopoly. Yeah, that's great. So the point I'm making about Monopoly is the mental health world is like that as well. The medical model pretends it's the winner in a, and has a monopoly on understanding distress and unusual experiences like seeing things or hearing things or troubling behavior. I might trouble other people and we're trying to make sense of that. Or they might trouble me. I might be troubled. The metaphor I'm using is the medical model is like the winner in Monopoly. But actually, you could relax a bit. You, you don't need to make this a battle. You could say, OK, one set of ideas, which has most of the dominance only in the last couple of hundred years. You know, I've looked at the history of this back to the 1700s, etc. It might not be around in 25 years, the medical model. It might just, you know, once people stop believing in something, it disappears. It's into the history books, isn't it? At the moment, it's the monopoly. Yeah, that's but a really good way of putting it. I really like that. And I just want to quickly clarify, because I was really intrigued by what yeah. you said at the start of that analogy, that um, you sort of, it did give you a tiny bit of comfort to to view it through the medical model, because was it that you were sort of yeah. saying, oh, well, I'm feeling this way because of my bipolar. And that, that gives me yeah, comfort yeah, yeah. to know that the bipolar is the reason why I'm feeling this way. So I think the, the alternative was just to feel this awfulness. I didn't really have yeah. the emotional language at the time to name these emotions of yeah. guilt, shame, blended with some resentment and bitterness, <laughs> blended with, you know, like I, I, didn't, I didn't have that emotional language then. I just felt, ah, oh, I feel like, oh, I feel awful. I might just go take something up you know do so do something to change how I felt um but it was very comforting I want to say a little bit it was very comforting to get a label because I thought oh this is like a badge of honor you know like that that might be too strong a way to put it but it was because it gave me an explanation justification we want to explain things and this is a profoundly professional thing and so in all that I'd say it wasn't a little bit comforting. It was tremendously comforting because I wanted to feel safe and Mm. I wanted to stop. I wanted to get away from the feeling that everybody was judging me because I was long-term unemployed. People said, oh, you've got some potential, Ray, but you seem to be, you know, getting into lots of scrapes. And people used to call me an alcoholic or a drug addict. And and they wouldn't wouldn't know what to make of me, really. They'd just say, well, you you know, he seems to have completely gone off the rails, right? And so in that, I could then, attach myself and feel comforted by the fact that well the sense I'm making of this 
yeah. and your your podcast making sense of chaos and and the framework would say it would ask one of those questions what meaning or sense are we making of this so one of the things that understandably and it's understandable we do this understandable i did this we attach ourselves to a narrative that helps us defend ourselves from other people mm-hmm. and feel safe so it's a bit mm-hmm. of a defense so mm-hmm. i could say oh don't criticize me like you haven't got like all these you haven't been diagnosed with seven different things so understandable now what i needed was a different narrative where I wasn't pretending I was just like, I did have those problems. You know, I was self-harming. There were ambulances turning up and taking me to a and I'm not pretending I was just like, it's not, you know, there's a variation. If you look at the adverse childhood experiences or ACEs studies and Google that, it shows you clearly that if people have, people vary in how much adversity and trauma they have in their child. It's not an even playing field. Some people have a lot of, of difficult start in life, but it's, it's even harder if you end up in that medical model. And it's more democratic to say, look, other models are available. It doesn't even have to be a fight. You can say, well, that's the dominant model. Obviously, you've been attracted to diagnosis. You don't need to get into the anti-stigma campaign. Instead, there are these other stories are available that might, uh, and it, they may have more of a go-ahead plot. They may be a bit more hopeful. And and all, all these, the framework questions are encouraging us to do is be curious and ask some questions which are not about do you meet the diagnostic threshold for this, that, and the next thing? And do you want to go in and out of psychiatric hospital and take loads of drugs? And um, it's a different sort of story, isn't it? Yeah, I'm. I'm interested, Ray, in your. You mentioned that in your younger years, self-harm and suicide, and and that relationship mm. there. How has that changed over time? Like, obviously, you were in the psychiatric medical model, and yeah, uh, I assume that there was. You mentioned seven times you were in and out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and what was the relationship between i suppose self-harm um attempting to end your life and 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 death were you trying to end your life and the suffering and or what what was the it's probably difficult to sort of go back and remember where you were but how has that transformed that space to the way you are now it's a good question. It's a really good question. And it, it, it is complex. And I would kind of acknowledge that it's different for different people. You know, one of the good, important things to think is we can all have different experiences. So, so for me, I think there'd be a buildup of despair through not being involved in the society that I was part of. You know, so practically, I didn't have a job. I didn't have friends. I didn't, apart from people I took drugs with, which weren't really really friends they were just people who we took drugs together i got a drug together so there'd be a build-up of despair and then i'd struggle and i'd really struggle a lot not to harm myself you know to be mm-hmm. fair to me uh but on your own it's very hard isn't it like you need this is why people you know need self-help peer support or, or some kind of community of people um so when i self-harmed i think it was doing a number of, it had a number of different functions in my life one of which was to relieve overwhelming, uncomfortable emotional experiences mm. where I sort of hated myself. I felt this is intolerable. Probably some of the thoughts that were fueling that were like, you haven't had a job for four or five years. You don't fit in. You know, it's low self-esteem. So and so the self-have sometimes was a, like a cut-off thing, like a way to break it. Like, yeah. so if I self-have, say if I cut myself or took loads of an overdose, and then, um, and, but then I would contact the emergency services and go to A&E. So part of me didn't want to die. So a way to think, one way to think about human beings is we've got different parts of ourselves. 
you know. So part of me wanted to live and part of me wanted to die. But part of me was neither of those things. It just wanted to feel differently from this awful feeling of guilt and shame and mm. stuck in a world where there was no hope. Mm. Um, so it had different functions. And what I would say is um, it, it, was, it was understandable that I self-harmed because I didn't really have some alternative ways to manage that self-destructive urges. Mm. Um, and to be really honest, when I got better over the last 20 odd years, I, I have struggled with self-destructive urges. They haven't completely gone away. Mm. You know, it's important to, it's important to be real about this and because it encourages people. But what happened was when I felt self-destructive in the, you know, on and off and, and I struggled with low mood as well. Um, not actually since August and it's, you know, so, you know, on and off, but not for quite a few months now, about nine months. Um, but when I felt self-destructive, when I got to that other narrative about my life getting better and getting married and, having, you know, raising children and, and, and all that, I had a lot more in life. I had a more optimistic narrative in which to contain those times when I felt low or I felt self-destructive. So they weren't as prolonged because there was a, a narrative which was a bit of an emotional container for me. Mm. For me, it happens to be like a faith narrative. Or, um, but also it was a narrative that involved, like, I'm a husband. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father to my children. I want to be a good granddad now that I've got grandchildren. So, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, it strikes me as, like, different identities that you could hold on to rather than just that identity of a mentally ill person. Exactly, exactly. So my narrative became richer in these other non-medical model mm. things. So if the only thing I'm hanging on to is I've got this diagnosis, it's a very negative narrative mm. you're stuck in. So I, 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 but I think self-harm can have different functions in our life at different times. So although it was a bit of a relief, sometimes it was like trying to communicate distress. So I might kind of say, oh, you know, if I let someone know I'd self-harmed, I was trying to say, it's awful in here. <laughs> you know, so I feel really terrible. And mm -hmm. the self-harm is a dramatic way to communicate. Because I wasn't great at communicating my feelings, or even with myself. I hardly ever knew. We only partly know what's going on with other people, and we only partly know what's going on with ourselves, don't we? We already, we already go on a bit of a journey to kind of be able to name these feelings. So I'd say it's got a lot better. I think it, it, it had... Um, it, it was just what you said there. I think once you get a better story going on where part of that is fulfilling family roles, for example. I mean, I know people are different and, and people, some people might stay, stay single, but um, whatever those things we value, if we have a narrative that's quite rich and it has a go-ahead plot, we've got a lot to lose. So we're more able to do something about managing those, like either periods of anxiety or low mood. I mean, I get anxious every day. So I, part of the problem about getting better was at first I thought, well, I'll get better when I don't feel anything. But then I realized, oh, hang on, I'm a human being. So I, used to think, I used to be bothered because I felt anxious. Like, I feel anxious every day. So I normalize it. Oh, it's normal to feel anxious because I do kind of lots of stuff. I, one of my threat responses is, is to uh, overwork. So I tend to do lots of things. You know, I well, I had a full-time job and raised a family and was running a business. I, I took on a PhD and did a PhD. It's, it was not that good to overwork because you get burnt out and I had to kind of balance that up. And um, so, so the point I'm making is that we might, it's understandable we have threat responses. One of them might be self-harming is the point you brought in. Others are overworking. They're not all bad. You know, like working hard, I've got, you know, obviously like a strong work ethic is good. But that makes, you know, those years of unemployment harder to tolerate 
because I had a strong work ethic. I didn't couldn't hold down a job because I had all this swirling around emotional stuff going on. So I felt bad. I felt guilty about not working. Yeah. And um, Ray, I've just noticed the time and it's just gone so quickly. <laughs> um, and I am conscious of um, yeah, of us not yeah, going yeah. too over. But uh, I guess just to end on, um, I was wondering if maybe you could provide sort of one one piece of advice to someone listening who might be feeling distressed um, or if the diagnostic system want to call it, you know, mentally mm. ill. Um, or they might know someone who, who's feeling distressed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there is there any sort of one piece of um, advice or any kind of words that you would give? It's a good question. Um, I suppose what comes to my mind is, however distressed people are, or concerned about people we love as well. It can be someone where we care about who's mm. distressed and we're distressed because of their distress, you know, like, and we're, we're worried about them um, or we might be worried about. So I think I'd always try to press the pause button and be hopeful. I know it's hard to be hopeful yeah. when you're distressed, but you might be hopeful for someone else in their place. Hold hope for them. When I was, didn't have any hope for myself. Um, other people did hold hope for me mm. that I could get better. So hold hope for people if you care about them. So press the pause and think that I could help someone to think, well, you, you, if you explore what people, if people tell you how they see the things, there'll be a reason. It makes sense, the story, the plot, why they feel so. And other narratives are available to explain that distress. And I, we've explored a bit of the power threat meaning framework today, but there's lots of other things out there that are not the power threat meaning framework. There's lots of other narratives out there. So the thing I'd suggest is, be validating to people that about their experience now. Validate someone if you're talking to someone else. Say, look, I understand you feel really distressed. And at the same time, be curious and encourage them to see other more hopeful narratives are out there. And you may have a few ideas yourself, but it might be a narrative that helps them as they get into a better trajectory for their life course that neither you nor me know about today. It's just the idea that other narratives are available. Be curious about this. When other people have had this sort of distress, that's how self-help groups work. Even if it's a self-help group about something like loss and grief, you know, a self-help group about that. It's about meeting other people. So so, so how would I sum that up? I'm kind of saying be hopeful for people, be validating that they do feel distressed at the moment or they're having unusual experiences, but be hopeful that actually we could explore some other sort of stories, some narratives that might be available. And then if you reorientate yourself within a different narrative, it's like a, a kind of a vehicle, a rocket that takes you off to a different destination mm. because stories often have, you know, a go-ahead plot to them. Mm. And that's my main criticism of the medical model is it's um, it's a bit of a loop-the-loop -loop mm. caught in a roller coaster round and round. Actually, mm. other narratives available. Stop being on the roller coaster. Let's go off and try. <laughs> you can see I like metaphors. Let's yeah, go and try. Get away from the roundabout. Get off the roundabout. Get off the roundabout. We go around the roundabout. Get off the roundabout. And, you know, I've shared a bit of my personal journey through life, but other people might find some of those roads are different roads, aren't they? Mm. And they mm. might involve things like, for, for you know, relationships and jobs. Mm. They might not, they might involve, get off the roundabout. Mm. Take one of those exits. <laughs> but you probably want to take the exit. Uh, and even if you take that exit and you're getting lost, I've never been to Australia, but it, it might be important if you get lost and you go hundreds of miles down the wrong road. 
even yeah. if I get off the roundabout and I, and I and I take this narrative that's not the medical model, the medical model roundabout. If I if I you know if it's a year later, I think this didn't really work for me. When I when I left mental health uh, with that system, I wanted to be a graphic designer, and I never designed. I never got there. You know, it doesn't matter because if you get lost, you could just take a right and think. Well, I'll try another narrative. And then eventually you can find the story, the narrative that makes sense to you, that resonates with your values. The values of that narrative resonate with your values. You can feel comfortable there. And it won't be problem free because you can have some bumps and some rocky road. You can have some potholes. I don't know if you have potholes in Australia, but um, you have potholes <laughs> in the road. <laughs> you can have some rocky road. The journey through life is rocky. You can have some difficulties that you. But you can always get off the roundabout, try something else if it doesn't work. <laughs> Turn right. If that ain't working, turn left into another narrative. Other narratives yeah. are always available. Yeah. Get off, get <laughs> off the roundabout. That's what we might yeah. get, get, get on the highway. Yeah. I, I exactly. It. Get on yeah. the highway. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of we just went for a walk before. And yeah. it's exactly our, we have no idea. Like, we, I mean, Maddie's the only person that I, I'll, we'll go to a hike, a simple hike, simple walk. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get lost. And yeah. It's, 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 so we just have no idea. No yeah. idea where we're going, yeah. but we end, we end up somewhere, and yeah. that somewhere is usually, you know, worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to get yeah, lost to of, find yourself, isn't there? Isn't there a saying around that? Yeah. You need a bit of sense of adventure to get yeah. off that roundabout, don't you? Yeah. A bit of like yeah. uh, trust, and you also need some other people. You, it helps to have a co-pilot, someone else in the car. We need community. We need some other people to say, yeah. you know, my compass is saying north, and and and, yeah. and, 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 and you might say to Jason, Jason might say, oh, my compass is saying east. I think we're, we're I, I think, I think we're in the middle of wherever we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we need a bit of bravery and courage, I suppose. We need courage. And courage isn't yeah. just something we find inside ourselves. We get courage from each other. So your character's in my narrative and I'm a character in your narrative. That's mm. a way to think about it. So we can be characters in each other's stories and we might be encouragers uh, on, on that road together. We journey together for a little while and we can encourage each other. Even we can be brave and say, do you know what? Maddie, I think we're lost. Oh, Maddie, if I say to Jason, do you know what? I think we're lost. So it's okay to be curious. It doesn't have to be a perfect journey. We mm. can say we're, we're being brave. We're going on this journey. Do you know what? I'm really relieved we left that roundabout and we're, at, like, we're, we're journeying here. And even if we're a little bit lost, it's more fun and interesting. And we want a life. We don't want to be stuck at that roundabout for mm. 50 years to it. Well, I love it. But thank you so much, Ray. Uh, it's been such a great experience talking to you. So refreshing. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think we might need to do a part two sometime, but um, I really enjoyed the conversation and just all, all your insights and the way you use metaphor and um, yeah, it's, it's, narrative. Narrative, yeah, it's yeah. just been yeah. really great, really great. Well, I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity yeah. to meet you both as well. You've got your stories, it's really interesting to meet you both. So, thank you yeah. for, for inviting me. That's thank lovely. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening. That was Making Sense of Chaos with Dr. Ray Middleton. Some would say a pretty controversial episode, perhaps not so controversial in a few years' time. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can follow us on Instagram at Making Sense of Chaos, all one word. So please send us a message there with your thoughts. All the best. Bye.